Well, good morning, everybody. So for any visitors that are joining us today, my name is Kevin Armstrong, and I'm privileged to serve this congregation in the role of senior pastor. So welcome. It's great to have you with us here today. I think we've had a great start to our gathering today, and uh, I just, I feel wonderful, and, and um, I just needed to take a minute to just, before I pray, just say something that uh, kind of has been on my heart, and this wasn't really kind of part of my plan for today, but, but I think it's very appropriate in, in light of our, our beginning together today. I've had it on my heart for some time, and you know because I've been encouraging us to be a church that really seeks the Lord with all of our heart, and that part of that is when we come here to, to, to really seek Him through worship. I uh, shared a quote a year ago from uh, A.W. Tozer, which says that in worship we become increasingly God-conscious. And God gave me this image some time ago uh, about worship, and it was, it was as if, you know, when we, when we begin our week, we get up on Monday morning, and Monday morning is, is our go-to day. We're off back to work, we're off back to school, uh, everything is ready to go, and so we, we head off into the week after the weekend in whatever our, our busyness of schedule is, and over the course of those 24 hours, um, we're, we're so caught up with what's ahead of us, it's as if we, we walk through this wall of green paint, and we get coated in green paint. And then we wake up on Tuesday morning, and, and uh, we got to go back out there, and, and it's not quite as, as invigorating as Monday, but it's still a, a busy day, and so we're head out into that day, and as we go through all of our events and activities on, on Tuesday, maybe we're family youth, or the family small group, or youth, or whatever, it's, it's work, it's family, it's whatever, and as we go through that day, we get coated in another wall of paint, and this time it's blue. It's a, it's a blue paint. Wednesday is our hump day. It's the middle of the week, we're feeling, you know, kind of a bit of fatigue already from the busyness of the week, and we're heading into the latter part of the week, and, and so it's kind of like a, a, a down day, a moody day, and as we go through the events of the day, and we battle with a little bit of that depression that comes with, with it being hump day, we get coated in another coat of paint, and this time it's yellow. And as we go through each day of the week, it's like we walk through these, these walls of paint, and, and layer after layer after layer of paint gets poured onto us until the weekend comes. And we can gather here again. And you know what happens when we gather to worship our God? As we begin to worship, the Holy Spirit washes over us and begins to wash off those layers of paint. Layer by layer, He washes them off. It's like having a shower it's like having a bath. And all of, that, all of that crusty paint that has been kind of caked on over the course of, of our week comes off. And our hearts become soft. And our minds become nimble and open. And our eyes are opened. And now we can see. And now we can hear and now we can feel. Now God enters in and pours himself in in the Holy Spirit in a new refreshing way and fills us up again. And then we're ready to go. That's what worship can do. That's what worship does. When we seek the Lord with all of our heart, he will be found. And I just wanted to share that with you because I was, as, I, as we worshiped and as we, as we sang, I just, I felt for me, I felt those layers coming off. And I so want that for you. I so want that for you. 
And so that's my prayer. My prayer is that, that today, uh, by the end of this day, you will be washed, you'll be cleaned, you'll be refilled, and you'll be refreshed, and you'll be ready to go. And uh, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, you do all that. You do all that. We don't do it. We're blessed with, with wonderful musicians, Lord, in this congregation. Um, you've provided such gifts to our church, and we're so grateful. But Lord, you're the one. You are the one who gives life. You are the one who does all of those things. So we present ourselves before you today as your people. We come humbly. We come, you know, with confession. We're broken. We're, we're messed up. We're covered in, in grime, Lord, because of uh, the sins of the week of the past. But Lord, we present ourselves by faith because we know that you invite us to do that. And you say, come, come. I'll clean you. I'll wash you up. I love you. I'm going to restore you. So restore us today, Lord. Restore us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Make us so sensitive to your presence in everything that we say and do. May we be touched, Lord, by your love. May we see the wonders of your love so that we can leave these doors re-energized as your people because everything that you're doing for us in here today, Lord, you want for all those people outside of these walls. And so... Would you open our minds and our hearts? Would you, as we look into your word, would you, would you bring to life in our hearing the things that we're going to be sharing? And would you continue this work of cleaning and restoring us as your people? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, just had a thought, we should be mindful, of, we haven't done this yet, but, but um, we should be thinking of all of those people who are going through disasters uh, in, uh, in the States in, um, in Florida, North and South Carolina, and of course in Asia as well, Hong Kong and China, those massive, massive storms. If you ever want to think about the difference between first world and third world, and I realize that you know, the, the hurricane in, in the northeastern United States was a category one, still a devastating storm, and in the Philippines it was a category five. But there, you know, the, the loss of life in, in the U.S. is, is you know, counted in, in tens, Whereas in the Philippines, it's counted in the hundreds and the thousands. Uh, so, and every one of those lives matters to God. So uh, let's continue to pray and when and opportunities come to, to give relief and support to those uh, organizations that are doing that, let's be generous and let's, uh, let's please do that. Last week, I introduced our theme for the year of what's in a name. And we mentioned that we were going to be looking at the book of Ephesians uh, primarily this year as the backbone of our preaching because I said that Ephesians really is a blueprint for what it is to be the people of God in the world for our day. That's what we're going to be unpacking over the course of the, of the year as we, as we move along. And today what I wanted to do was talk about why we need to know about the Ephesians. What, what matters for them? Well, in drama, my daughter is a, is a drama major, so she would be better able to speak to this than I am, and she'll correct me for any mistakes I make after this, by the way. But, but one of the things that, that I understand is that, you know, and I'd heard this in my preaching class as well, is that you're known for your entrances and your exits. Entrances and exits are really important, how you come into the scene and how you leave the scene, because you're, you're making a first impression and you're leaving a lasting impression. And so those are really important. Now, my, my homiletics preacher would not be happy with the way I've started today because uh, I don't think I made much of an impression in terms of my message. But nonetheless, 
You're known for your entrances and for your exits. And that's why we're looking at Ephesians, because before we can look at the book, the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians, we actually know some things about the church in Ephesus that we can learn from. We can, we can look at it as a kind of a case study. So if this letter is a blueprint for what it is to be the people of God, what did that church actually look like? And how did it live out its calling as the people of God? And we can learn some things about that. So who were the Ephesians? And what do we know about the church in Ephesus? Well, I'm going to start today in Acts chapter 19. If you have your Bible or your phone app, your Bible app on your phone, open it up. You can look to Acts chapter 19. And I just want to move through this you know, relatively quickly. You might be familiar with the story. And if not, you can go back and read Acts chapters 18 and 19 for yourself and get the full story. But we'll just highlight a few things. We find in chapter 18 that, this, that the first time Ephesus comes up that this couple named Priscilla and Aquila who were a power couple of the first century church. Paul writes about them and talks about them in his letter to the Romans and we read about them in Acts. Um, were actually in a place called Ephesus. And they come across this guy named Apollos who was a great orator, a gifted speaker and a, and a passionate follower of the way but he needed some tweaking he needed some some help some instruction and so they they helped dial him in a little more uh, deeply to jesus and the gospel and he went on to become a great leader of the church that all was happening in ephesus and in chapter 19 verse 1 it says while apollos was at corinth paul took the road through the interior and arrived at ephesus there he found some disciples and asked them did you receive the holy spirit when you believed they answered, no, we've not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, what baptism then did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They spoke in tongues and prophesied, and there were about 12 men in all. So the first thing that we see is Paul, when he comes to Ephesus, he encounters these individuals who've heard of, of repentance. They've heard of John's message, but they haven't heard of Jesus or the Holy Spirit. And so Paul explains to them about Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and they're, and they're baptized in Jesus' name, and they receive the Holy Spirit, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. We mentioned, how many times did we mention in the book of Acts, the importance of, of the church being a Spirit-empowered, a Spirit-filled people? That the Holy Spirit is key to the empowerment of the church makes all the difference. And look at the difference it made in these 12 men. They knew about repentance. They knew that sin was bad. And they knew that they should, they should you know, move away from their sin. They should stop sinning. They should you know, obey the law. They, they, they tried to do that to the best of their ability. But they were missing something so significant. They were missing the gospel and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We spent a lot of time talking about that over the last year. So things go on. Paul begins his teaching. Uh, he's in the synagogue and things start to happen. In verse 11, it says this. He said, Paul did extraordinary miracles, or God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. This is all in Ephesus. As the church is forming and getting started in Ephesus, 
right? There's so much happening. There are, there are wonders and miracles and things happening that are, are drawing and catching people's attention for good and for bad because the very next thing that happens is there's a controversy that arises because Ephesus was a great uh, city to the, to the goddess uh, of, uh, of Artemis, the, the great goddess of the Ephesians, and people didn't take well to this, to what was happening as people were turning from the idols and turning to Jesus and beginning to follow the way. So the next thing that happens is some Jews who were exorcists were going around and uh, trying to cast out demons. Things were not going well for them. Paul came along, did a powerful miracle, an exorcism that got everybody's attention, was able to cast out a demon when others couldn't. And in verse 17, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, listen to this, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Listen to this. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A, the, a, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Remember how one of the things that we said is when we invite the Holy Spirit into our lives and into our presence, one of the first works that he does is to convict us of sin of the things that we're, we're holding on to, the secrets we're keeping, you know, the, the, the things that, that we know that we're dealing with that we just can't bring ourselves to deal with, one of the first things the Holy Spirit does is bring those things to light and say, this has got to go. Let's deal with this. And isn't it interesting that as the church was getting going with all of this powerful stuff that was going on, all of these good things that were happening in Jesus' name being magnified, what was the effect on the believers as that was happening? They were convicted. And they confessed. And they repented. And they changed. All that stuff. And we're talking sorcery here, right? It was, it was such a superstitious culture. And that was such a part of the culture. And so often that's what happens is we come to Jesus and, and we, we say yes to Jesus and we still hold on to so many parts of the culture that are, that are just so against who he is. And they're not compatible. And we can mix that up and hold that mix together for years and years and years and create a kind of an image of, of Christ in our life. But what the Holy Spirit wants to do is break that down and say, no, 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 let's get real. They became all in. I love that. They were all in. When they saw what God was doing through Paul and as the church was getting going, they went all in. At great cost to themselves. They were holding nothing, nothing back. Now that's quite an entrance. When you think about the, 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 how the story of the church at Ephesus starts, that's quite an entrance. But look at what was said about them 40 years later. This time we go to Revelation. Ephesus is mentioned in the book of Revelation in the letters that Jesus sends to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And it's in chapter 2 that John records this as coming from Jesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Now he's writing in apocalyptic language, so it's highly, there's a lot of imagery going on here, and I'll unpack a little bit of it as we go, but listen to this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand 
and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not, but have found them false. You've persevered, you've endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. All really good stuff. Really high praise. Truths of the church in Ephesus that the Lord points out and says, this is all good. Yet, I hold this against you. You've given up the love you had at first. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the first works again. If you don't repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So in 40 years, they went from this powerful start to becoming something less than. Something less than. Oh, they had strengths. They were very concerned about maintaining the truth. They were very concerned about making sure that there weren't people in their midst who were teaching bad things or wrong things or leading people astray. And they had to be. The church in that day was filled with all kinds of itinerant preachers who had all kinds of wacky ideas about what Christianity was all about. And so having that, the need to be on guard that way was a very important thing. They're not being criticized for that. They're not being criticized for being defenders of orthodoxy. They're not. But in becoming such staunch defenders of orthodoxy, they left something behind. And the thing that they left behind was their love. Their love expressed in action. Their love expressed in action. You see, their faith became, it got in their heads. It got in their heads. And it became about something that they knew, something they could confess, but it was no longer something they lived, something they did, something they breathed, something that animated them, motivated them, that pushed them out into the lives of others. Because that's what the first works were. Agape. Deeds motivated by agape. If you look at the Greek, that's exactly what the image is. Deeds, literal works, literal actions motivated by agape. That's what they left behind. And Jesus says, get it back. Because if you don't, you're going to lose your lampstand. You're going to lose your lampstand. I mentioned to you last week that one of the books that I'm reading right now is Exodus and reading about the tabernacle. Do you know that when God was establishing the tabernacle, his, his place of meeting for the people of God in the Old Testament, when he was doing that, the first thing he tells them to build is the Ark of the Covenant where they're going to house the tables, the tablets of stone. The next thing he tells them to build is the table that will hold the showbread. And then, he tells them to build a lampstand. A lampstand that would sit outside of the tabernacle in the courtyard, just outside of the tent of meeting. And it would be filled with pure oil, and it would, be, it would remain lit 24 hours a day. Because that lampstand... That light signified the presence of the Lord. 
So when Jesus says to them, get it back or you'll lose your lampstand, what he's saying is, you'll lose my presence. You'll lose my presence. You become a dead church. Oh, we might be doing all the things, we could be doing all the things that a church normally does, but if we lose God's presence, Moses said, you know, in, in Israel, he said, God, he said, you know, if you don't go ahead of us, if your presence isn't with us, we don't want to go. Because your presence makes all the difference. Your presence makes all the difference. So he says, don't, don't give up the first works. Don't give up the works of love. Don't forget that part. That is so critically important. So the question I want us to ponder is this. Is it possible for a church to begin well and wane? Is it possible for you or I as Christians, as individual Christians, to begin well and wane? Let's take a few minutes to think about that. Have a seat. Many of you probably know that uh, our son Cameron uh, lives and works in Stockholm, Sweden as a teacher, and he's in his third year there. Uh, we, uh, we miss him greatly. Uh, we're really proud of him and happy for uh, his, his desire to follow the Lord in his life, and uh, uh, we always ask, we talk to him every Sunday afternoon and, and get caught up on how things are going. And last week we were talking, we always ask him how things are going. He, he uh, found a church there you know, early on and has been going uh, to church involved in their ministry he leads a small group and he uh, is part of a, a, a service where they provide food for um, people in downtown Stockholm and he goes down once a month and helps with the food kitchen and things like that and and yet he is still seeking he's still searching for something and I think many of his generation can identify with that they love us they love the church but still something is missing something, they're yearning, they're longing for something, and, uh, and he is. So we were chatting with him last week, and he, he, he told us that he had, he's met a, a pastor couple that want to do a church plant in uh, Stockholm, and he's thinking of joining them and becoming part of that new work, that church plant. And there, there can be few things as exciting as being part of a new work like that and to be part of something like that. And if that's what he feels God calling him to do, then, then he has our blessing and that would be wonderful. It would be great for him to, to become part of that because there are a few things as exciting or challenging as being part of a church plant. 36 years ago, this congregation began with such a plant. 24 people meeting in the library, or the music room, sorry, of Vaughn Willard School in Pickering. And we're blessed with several of the founding members of that congregation, still vibrant, active parts of our congregation, and we honor you. We honor you. We honor your faithfulness. We honor your legacy. But I'd like to take us, let's think for just a second what it was like. I don't know if you've ever been part of something like that. I know we, many of us have come from other places and other churches, and we might have other beginnings and other stories to tell. But this is our story at Forestbrook Community Church. 
And it began with those people meeting in the music room at Vaughn Willard School. And in those early days, everybody pitched in. Chairs had to be set up. You know, sound systems had to be set up. You know, somebody had to volunteer to, to lead the, the worship or, or to do the preaching or whatever. And as they were eager to see their, their work grow to their community, they had to do, organize events and do all kinds of things. And it really was an all-hands-on-deck. And those things need to be because that's the only way they're going to fly. And God saw their love and he saw their zeal and he saw their enthusiasm and he blessed them. And he blessed them, and their work grew. And tens and hundreds of people came to know Jesus through the work that began with those 24 people. You and I are the stewards of that legacy. If you call Forestbrook Community Church your church home, I don't care how long you've been here, if you call this your church home, you, along with me, are stewards of that legacy. We own that. So when we say that, that this year we want to learn more profoundly what it is to be the people of God on our earth, on, on, in, our, in our world today, for our time today... It is to go back to that legacy to those people to say, what you began, we will continue and we will pass on to the generation behind us so that God's work that began in you will continue. Um, Shirley and I were at an event at All Saints Anglican Church in Whitby a couple of years ago, and they were celebrating their 150th anniversary. I don't think any of the founders were there. <laughs> and I was struck by that. I am so aware of how privileged we are to have our founders in this church. And I so feel a responsibility for what they began and for that legacy. And when we were in that church and, I, and they were celebrating their 150th anniversary and I knew that none of the founders were there, I thought to myself, would Forest Brook be around to be able to celebrate its 150th? If time goes on and God permits, will there be a Forest Brook to celebrate its 150th? Would you want there to be? Would you want there to be? Well, if time permits and Jesus has not returned and the kingdom is not here in its fullness, absolutely. Because there will be a need for the people of God in the world of that day. There will be a need for the church of God, a vibrant, living, active church for this community in that day. And it is quite possible for churches to die. We won't find much of a Christian presence in Ephesus today. Now we know, yeah, history, time changes, all things, absolutely. And 150 years from now, you know, we'll all be in glory and, and we'll know the end of the story, right? 
But it's, it's our story to continue writing today. You and I are writing these chapters. You and I are writing this story, being led by the Holy Spirit today, and he's calling us to renewal. He's calling us to revival. He's calling us back to our first love. Do you hear him? If you're a follower of Jesus and you call Forestburg Community Church your church home, do you hear him? How do you want Forestburg Community Church to be remembered in history? How do you want to be remembered in history? Those are important questions because that is what makes the difference between whether this study of, F, of Ephesians is going to be an academic study for us or whether it's going to be life-changing. And I want us to ask that question of ourselves and one another before we even begin. How do we want to be remembered? I know uh, many in our congregation know the Gaither family. Um, I don't know about personally. Maybe some of you know them personally, but you certainly know of them. You love them. You know, they're, they're, they have a, a, lo- you know, a long musical legacy. And, and um, here's a Bill Gaither story. Bill Gaither tells the story of when he was looking for a piece of land to buy a house where he could build a home and raise a family. And there was a, a farm um, uh, where the land was owned by a 92-year-old banker who refused to sell it to anybody. It was just pasture land. And Bill Gaither thought, well, you know, it's a beautiful piece of land. I, I must be able to get some of it from him. So he went in and he met with this, this 92-year-old man named Mr. Ewell. And he asked him, he said, would you be willing to sell me a piece of land so I could raise my family? And Mr. Ewell hardly even looked up from his papers on his desk. He was still a working banker at age 92, Ann. So, right, lots of, lots of room left. Lots of room left. Ann's a banker, by the way. So, um, so he barely looked up from, it, from the papers on his desk, and he said, it's not for sale. It's pasture land, it's not for sale. And um, so Bill persisted a little bit, and he put a proposal in front of him, and it was a letter, you know, asking for the land, and, and, and the banker noticed his name, Bill Gaither. And he stopped for a second, he looked at it, and he said, Wait a second. Are you related to Grover Gaither? And Bill said, yeah, he's my grandfather. And the man said, how much land do you want? And sold him 15 acres of land. Turns out that Grover Gaither had worked on the land as a farmer for Mr. Ewell for many years. And he had done such good work and he had such a good reputation with Mr. Ewell that as soon as Mr. Ewell realized that this was Grover Gaither's grandson standing in front of him, he said, I'll give you the land. Many years later, Bill Gaither was walking on the land now developed with his son. And Bill turned to his son and they were looking, looking at all of this wonderful property that, that they had been privileged to live on and grow up on. And he said to his son, he said, son, never forget that the land we walk on, none of this came from anything that we did. It all came 
from your great-grandfather, Grover, and the reputation he had. That's what it is to be a steward of a legacy. That's what it is to inherit something that's precious. And we have. I'd like to invite the ushers to come forward as we move to communion. In the book of Exodus, as I said earlier, reading all about the tabernacle, It goes through great detail of of how the tabernacle was made and how it was to be operated. And uh, yeah, we don't have a tabernacle these days. We are the tabernacle. We are the dwelling place of God. But there's wonderful imagery and lots of great, great, great lessons in those passages for you and I for today. One of them that came from uh, Exodus chapter 30 is for the oil of anointing. Um, Because one of the things that they did was the, the oil that they used for the anointing was a very special mixture, and it was made by perfumers. I don't even know if that's a word today, but that's the word, you know, then. Was, they, they were perfumers, people who were professional at, at mixing these things to, to make just the, the right aroma. And so God gave them the mixture, and he said, here's how you're supposed to make it, and it had to be made by perfumers. Uh, and then nobody was allowed to use that particular fragrance for anything else, punishable by death. Yeah, the Old Testament was harsh that way. Right, but so you couldn't use it for anything else. Otherwise, you get stoned to death. And um, so, but it had this this gorgeous, beautiful aroma. So when you think of David being anointed king and and Samuel pouring the oil, the horn of oil over his head, right? He would have been covered in this, and it would have had this beautiful, historical, fragrant aroma. That would have been unique to that purpose of sanctification. As we go to the table today, I want us to hear something from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession, in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of, of the knowledge of Him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. We are the aroma of Christ to God and to the world. So let's be washed. Today, as you receive communion, be washed in the blood of Christ. Be renewed in the covenant of Christ. Be covered in the aroma of Christ. So that as we leave this place today, the world will be, it will be impossible for them to know that we are not His. They'll smell Him on us. That's how much we want to be the people of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the testimony of your word. 
and thank you for your faithfulness. We know you are faithful, Lord, and we know that you call us deeper. You call us forward. You call us to yourself so that we can be refreshed and renewed and healed and that we can then become effective, Lord, as salt and light in the world. You have such a great plan, such a great purpose. And long before we ever became a part of it, you sent Jesus because he is the king. He's the one through whom it's all possible. He gave his blood, he gave his body, and he said, here, take, eat, here, drink. It's a gift to us. We receive this communion today, Lord, with thanksgiving in our hearts. Wash us again in the blood of Christ. Heal us again through the broken body of Christ. Cover us in the aroma of Christ. And help us, Lord, to represent him well in the world you love. In his name we pray. Amen.